he was harsh, but he would repeatedly say, like, especially when I first joined, he was like, this is not personal. He's like, I'm trying to take you from like a B plus to an A plus here. Like, and he really did make me a much better attorney, a much better writer. Like he knew his stuff backwards and forwards. So I learned a ton. What's up, standouts? It's Yolanda, and this is episode number two of How She Did It. I'm interviewing my friend, Amanda Guzman, who is the head of operations at the Cheryl Sandberg and Dave Goldberg Family Foundation. Amanda has a really interesting career path. She started her career as a lawyer, then switched to venture capital, and now she's doing operations for a foundation. We cover it all in our conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. All links and references made during this interview can be found on the show notes for this episode at nts.today forward slash two. And now without further ado, let's start the show. My name is Amanda Guzman, and I currently am the head of operations at the Cheryl Sandberg and Dave Goldberg Family Foundation, whose more widely known projects are Lean In and Option B. We know each other, but I noticed your career path has been very interesting to me because I know that you were a lawyer, and then I saw you move into venture capital, and then you moved into foundational work. So I think that's a really fascinating career path to understand and see what made you shift there. So I'm really happy that you're on today. Awesome. I'm excited to tell you about it. <laughs> Great. So why don't we start from the beginning, not from the womb, but a little bit later. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in a small sort of rural town in San Diego County called Valley Center. It's about half an hour north of downtown San Diego, but it's pretty, pretty rural. It's not uncommon to see people riding horses down the street or tractors and that sort of thing. You know, I lived on eight acres, so it was pretty isolated, I would say. Do you have siblings or are you an only child? I am not an only child. I'm the oldest, actually. I have two siblings. I have a younger sister who's three and a half years younger than me, and then my little brother is five and a half years younger than me. Okay, those were nice breaks for your parents. Yeah, they were. It was very intentional. My mom is a therapist, and she was a um, she worked for Child Protective Services and studied a lot about parenting and, and sort of the best approach. And at that time in the 80s, it was deemed that like three, three and a half years was the ideal spacing between children. So that's how she decided that. So tell me a little bit about how high school. Um, I enjoyed high school. Um, I went to just a regular public school. Um, most of the kids that I went to high school with, I started kindergarten with. My graduating class was, I think, something like 300. So it's pretty small. Uh, when I was in high school, I did some sports. So I did track and field and um, I tried a few others. But the problem was actually just the area I grew up in. Um, it was very athletic and a lot of kids would do sports from like the age of three, like soccer or, um, you know, like the boys would do football or kind of all these different swimming all that kind of stuff. And when I was younger, both of my parents worked um, and my grandma watched me and she didn't drive me to practices. So I actually never got to do that when I was a child. So coming into high school, I was basically trying to join teams when I like basically just learned a sport and other kids have been playing it since they were three. Mm -hmm. um, but I did do track and field because that's, you know, it's hard to do that when you're a kid. Um, so no one really had that on me. And then I lifted weights a lot, actually. And I still do that. It's my, still my passion. I do powerlifting now. And then I, I worked as soon as I got my license at 16, I got a job and basically earned 
my own pocket money. What got you into powerlifting? So powerlifting itself, it is obviously its own sport, but really what it means for me, because I don't, I tend to do like maybe one or two meets just to like put some numbers on the board and kind of see what I can do. I just have always liked to lift weights and I like just kind of that progress and continuing to practice every time you do it and, and always refining your form, always getting a little better and just something about that I really enjoy. And you also said that you worked? Well, <laughs> I worked in the mall. First I worked at Sam Goody, which I'm sure like younger listeners have never even heard of because it's been out of business for some time. Is that but the music I, store? Yes, it was the music store. And then my senior year of high school, I worked at Hot Topic. Um, any memorable experiences from high school that you think shaped you back then? In terms of shaping my career, that actually goes back to when I was a little kid. Okay. I wanted to be a lawyer since I was six years old. And I never knew why. And everyone was always so surprised because I didn't have any lawyers in my family. I didn't watch any sort of like legal TV shows. But just since I was six, I wanted to be a lawyer. And only like a two years ago, I figured out that it was because when I was six, I read all of the Nancy Drew books and her dad is a lawyer. Ah. That must have been where I got it um, because I also like knew I wanted to go to college and I wanted to be in a sorority and do all these things because I read about it in those books. Um, and she traveled the world and she was good at like everything. So that influenced me a lot. But one that stick with me in kind of a negative way, I guess, is um, my senior year when I found out I got into Stanford. At the time, I was the only kid who'd ever gotten into Stanford from my school. And I know for like at least probably five to seven years after, no one else did. Um, and I remember one of my classmates who was a white guy, he meant well. And to, to be fair, to his credit, he said to my face, he was like, well, you only got into Stanford because you're a woman and you're Mexican. I can't really remember what I said to him, but I kind of just blew it off. I was like, I have the second highest SAT scores in this class. I'm fourth in our class, better grades than you do. Like, I don't think that's why. Um, but even though I had these sort of factual things that indicated to me that I did belong at Stanford and I did deserve to get in and I didn't get in just because of like my background, it stuck with me in a, in a way that um, I think impacted me for many years because I worried a lot that where I was, I'd only gotten there because of my background. I didn't deserve to be there. And I always was kind of like looking for ways to prove that I was just as good as everyone else who was there. And that that went with me through law school. It went with me through like my first kind of legal job. I just always had in the back of my mind that like, am I good enough? Or did I get this just because of, you know, the fact that I'm a woman and I'm Mexican, even though I always check the, you know, the cutoffs for like grades and, and like LSAT scores and all this kind of stuff to see where I fell. And I always felt well within the range of what these schools admitted or, or the, who the employers hired, but it just still was in my mind that I wasn't, I didn't really deserve to be there. Yeah. I remember when I was in high school and my senior year and I'm applying for, like I went to an out-of-state private school. So it was like very expensive and my family was like very poor growing up. So it was just like, there's no way that I'm going to be able to afford to go there. So my guidance counselor was amazing. He would always tell me about scholarships that I should apply for. He used to call me out of class so much that one of my teachers started joking that we were having an affair. Oh my. And it <laughs> was also like not appropriate at all. I know, but it was just like, this was like the class count clown teacher that everyone loved. So I knew that he was joking. He, he would just always tell me about scholarships that I needed to apply to. And I remember there was one scholarship that I applied to and I had to go through a couple of rounds of interviews. And I want to say that the scholarship was like eight or $10,000. It was like a big deal. So they interviewed me and 
and then they interview like some recommendations of some teachers and then they interviewed me again and I was very aware of being a a black kid with a single parent and being poor in like the perception and so it was like always important for me to be this this good kid and um, like I thought that I had rose above my circumstances and I proved myself to be like very smart and like deserving of this stuff I remember after I went in for a second round of interviews that the person that interviewed me said, well, I talked to one of your teachers and they just mentioned how you've been successful despite all of your extenuating circumstances. And I was like, well, what extenuating circumstances? And it was like, well, you know, you know, your mom's a single parent and you don't have a lot of money. And it was one of those things. It was just like a rude awakening to me. Like, oh, like even despite me being a great student and working and all of that, like there were still people who, and I'm sure that they were just trying to present it as a way of like, she had all these things stacked against her, but she was still able to do well. But I just thought, like oh wow like despite that stuff like you still have to use that as like this feel good story I mean it helped I guess because I did win a scholarship with that organization but I always felt some kind of way about that being used as a like hey she wasn't supposed to be successful so look at her you are trying to discount my accomplishments because of something that you have no control over yeah I definitely think so and it's something that um that isn't surprising to me to hear and also now that I'm older and have, have been exposed to more things I'm seeing that that's something that people want to latch on to to discount what you've done but they at the same time completely ignore the influence that you know the fact that they have a parent who runs a company you can just give them a job or who has powerful friends and give them a job or that you know like people complain about affirmative action but really the big affirmative action is legacy admission we graduated high school you wanted to be a lawyer. Um, did you have an idea of what type of law you wanted to practice? No, I didn't because, um, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't know any lawyers. Um, and actually, that's not true. I did know a family friend who was a lawyer peripherally, but I never like talked to him about what he did. I don't even know what I thought I would do. I guess I just thought lawyer. And I think I didn't really think too deeply about what exactly that would mean. I think I also just wasn't aware of how many different types of law there are, all the things you can do as a lawyer. Um, so I just knew I wanted to be a lawyer. And so I just majored in poli science. Um, and then discovered I hated that major, but I was already mm -hmm. so far along in it that I just picked up another major because it never even occurred to me to graduate early because being at Stanford's really fun. So I was <laughs> nowhere, no way was I going to leave that place for, you know, any earlier than my four years. So I just picked up another major and I did religious studies, which I loved. Why did you pick Stanford? Oh, well, that's actually sort of a slightly embarrassing story because we like um, those. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I always thought I wanted to go to Berkeley, actually, because my mom had told me all about how like Berkeley was this hot fed of political activity mm -hmm. in the 60s and all this kind of stuff. Which, so I kind of thought I would go to Berkeley. Um, being a, a California resident, you could essentially apply to all, basically all the UCs, the University of California's with one application. I had gotten my senior year this invitation to apply for, or maybe it was like my junior year, an invitation to apply for a program that was a couple weeks to visit. And I thought, oh, well, and they were going to choose 60 students out of like the entire country. And I was like, oh, well, if I get into this, you know, that means I'll probably, maybe I'll get in. And if I don't get in, then I probably shouldn't apply because I won't get into Stanford. And I did not get in. But then they sent me a fee waiver 
paper. And I was like, well, why not? And so yeah. I just applied and then it turned out I got in. So it was like a very sort of serendipitous thing because it wasn't really on my radar. I wasn't aware of how good of a school it was. So was there um, something during your time in college that affected your college experience, whether that was a class, a professor, anything that really affected your career path or your career aspirations when you graduated high school? Probably one of the most influential things in general in my college experience was belonging to a Latina sorority because that was a, a great way for me to connect with other folks who were like me in terms of all the AP classes. Usually it was just me and maybe one other person of color, mm-hmm. um, pops, but I had just always hung out mainly with white kids because they were the ones in my class. So it was great to meet other Latinas, you know, like me. And, and many of them came from very, you know, all different backgrounds all over the country and stuff. But it just was like such a great opportunity to connect with people from my own culture. And I went and I didn't really feel that comfortable there because, um, you know, the, the way I look, um, because to many people, I they think I look white, including other Mexicans. And even though like, if you go to Mexico, you will see Mexicans who look just like me, you will see black Mexicans, you'll see Asian Mexicans, mm-hmm. like basically just like the US. Mm, okay, so let's talk about that a little bit more about you um, being able to you could potentially pass as white because you're very fair skin. How else do you think that that affected you, whether that's personal, professionally over your entire life? How did, what did that how did that affect you? I think it's made my life easier. Um, because of the fact that I only, people sometimes see my last name and pick up on it, but other times people think my last name is German. So it's not a guarantee even with that. Um, and I usually do say it more anglicized to help people understand it. So then that adds to that as well. But, um, I think it's definitely made my life easier because now I only struggle against the challenges of women as opposed to women of color, mm. you know, which is a whole nother layer of challenge. And once people do realize my background, I think that does start to impact how they view me. But I think it's just made my life easier, to be honest, which is which is really sad um, because it's basically pure luck that I happen to look the way I do. My dad is from southern Mexico. He's from Oaxaca. He's uh, mestizo. So he's like Mexican Indian and he's very dark. But and my mom is very light. So I just happen to pick up her coloring as opposed to his. But the fact that it's made my life easier, I take for me, that means to me, it's, it's a responsibility for me to do what I can for those who aren't, you know, as able to as able to move between worlds as I am. Um, and that's... That means that sometimes I'm talking to white people who think I'm white and then they mm-hmm. make comments. And so I take that opportunity to kind of educate them or, or, you know, try to talk to them about other points of view or explain like why, you know, certain things are the way they are, you know, because they've never been exposed to it. Um, and so I just find that kind of, I think that's sort of a responsibility of mine that I, on the one hand, move in an easier way. So that means I need to be the one who's there um, talking to people and making sure I speak up, you know, when that voice needs to be heard. Um, you know, especially nowadays, like I'm much more vocal because um, I just realized like, how when you stand by, like, you know, people take that as as a sort of tacit endorsement. And that's just not okay, especially in this time. Like before, I understand people don't want to ruffle feathers, but the only people who can get away with, with living like that are people that aren't affected by that. It's kind of like when people say, I don't see color, only people who are <laughs> quote unquote right color can say that because they have the luxury of living like that. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like, you know, um, w- with these times, like we can't be these, these kind of like messages that seem positive, like I don't see color and we're all one are actually quite damaging. Um, so you kind of need to speak up against that. These kind of platitudes that seem, seem nice, but actually are quite insidious yeah. um, and kind of perpetuate these, you know, systemic uh, injustices. Okay. So you graduated high school, and I must confess, when I realized where you went to law school, I almost didn't reach out to you to interview you because I hate your school. (laughs) But you went to Duke, unfortunately, correct? Yes. 
Yes, I did. Why did you pick Duke? Um, again, not a very good reason. Like my, I, like, I look back on my life and I'm like, who let me pick my, like my, who let me make my own choices? <laughs> Everything in my entire life has been serendipitous. But this was again, like I was applying to law school my senior year and I, you know, picked a bunch of schools and the guidance counselor, like who handled pre-law, she gave me very mixed messages because sometimes she'd be like, oh, like your grades are so good and your essay, your LSAT score is so good. Like you're a strong candidate. But then she'd be like, well, but you don't have work experience. It makes you, you know, weaker can't. And so I I just felt like I never uh, felt good about where I was. So I applied to all these schools um, that I probably didn't even need to apply to. But then I got a um, this uh, letter from Duke basically offering, you know, me to like, like apply for free. And that also they put me on like a fast track where I would find out very quickly whether I was admitted. I just at that time was I was scared. I wasn't going to get in anywhere. So I was like, oh, this is great. I'll find out. And then, you know, we'll see what happens. And actually I ended up getting in UCLA before I got into Duke. But I ended up getting into Duke um, and then they gave me, you know, a, like a pretty big scholarship. So, and I went to visit and I was, I went straight through. Um, so I was still very much in like the Stanford mode and, and, you know, kind of being involved in that community. And so I wanted a school that was just like Stanford, but wasn't Stanford. Cause I didn't, I didn't want to make the transition to being a grad student. Okay. So you just said like, Hey, Duke sent me this letter telling you to apply and that they would waive it. Like there has to be something that would make them send you this letter so what was that and how did they find out it must have been my LSAT score or something okay. um I definitely had good enough grades to get into these kind of schools and I was involved with the sorority and like other I did a few other things at school um but I think it was probably my LSAT score I, I may have they may have been on my radar for something and I may have like chosen to send it to them or, or something like okay. that but um it was probably that um because my LSAT score was um was on the higher side so that's probably why they reached out to me okay so tell me about law school Law school was interesting. Um, I didn't love it, but I didn't hate it. Law school is tough. Like I have people nowadays who, uh, you know, they're like, oh, can I talk to you about going to law school? I'm thinking about it. And I'm like, okay, do you want to be a lawyer? Because if you don't want to be a lawyer, do not go to law school. Because even if you want to be a lawyer, at some point, you're probably going to hate it because it's not easy. It's very competitive. Um, and, you know, law is a very prestige driven environment. So like, basically, you need to go to the best school you can get into um, and do as well as possible to get a good job because it's just it's just that's just how the legal world works. Like it's kind of similar to business school. You need to get into a really good school. Mm -hmm. So that you can get the good job because the good companies only go to the best school. I did an internship. Like I literally left, I graduated from Stanford on a Sunday and that night I took a red eye to New York and got off the plane the next day and went to work at this internship at the law firm I later worked at. It was um, called Skadden in New York and I worked there and I, the requirement was eight weeks. So I had exactly eight weeks between Stanford and Duke. Wow. <laughs> So what was your favorite law class that you took? One of them was probably securities regulation. Um, our professor was really funny. He really knew his stuff. Like he's still regularly quoted, you know, when, when people like go to, you know, experts for, for stories about securities regulation. I actually really liked accounting for lawyers, which is like kind of a, a dumbed down version of accounting. But I, I actually, it's, and that's actually relevant in my job now. Like I really uh, enjoy kind of the finance piece of what I do. Um, and so those are probably my two, my two favorites for me. I think this is probably why I'm no longer primarily a lawyer. I didn't love the law. Like I, I knew people who loved law and they love to learn about it. They love to think about it. Whereas I'm much more like interested in what law can do okay. and what you do as a lawyer. But I wasn't like super interested in law itself. And so before you started law school, you mentioned that you worked at, is, is it Skadden? Yes. Okay. How did you get connected with them? So again, very random. I received in the mail a letter. These um, things are random, Amanda. I'm not believing these things are random now. 
I I mean, my entire life has been serendipitous in this way, but like I got this letter from this program called SEO, which stands for Sponsors for Educational Opportunity. And they do a bunch of stuff, but they also do a variety of internships, but they also have a corporate law program. So I got the, I got this letter and the deadline was like a week away, like the final deadline. So I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just apply and see what happens. And it was, there was probably, I don't know, something like 20 different firms who participated. And so some of them treated the summers like they were summer associates. And some of them, it was more like you were an intern and scouting was more of the intern approach. So whereas some of my classmates got automatic, not automatic, but they got uh, invitations to summer the next summer. Um, I didn't. So I had to go and apply like everybody else did. Because um, it's not that I didn't earn one. They just didn't do that. I just interned there. But that was a huge thing for me because in college, I'd interned at the family law courthouse. And I thought that was really interesting. So I thought, oh, well, I'll be a family law lawyer. But then when I went to work at Skadden and I did um, corporate law, I thought this, no, this is like where I want to be. And I realized I really liked it. And that was, you know, something I was interested in. So that shaped where I applied to um, when I was in law school to work. I never, never thought about litigation, never thought about anything other than going to a big corporate firm in New York. So you switched from having an interest in family law to corporate law. By the time that you were done with law school, were you still definitely like, I want to do corporate law or had it, had your career aspirations changed? No, it was the same. That was, that's what I wanted to do. And I, and even now that I don't work in the law firm anymore. I'm still happy I did that because that's still, I think for me was the path that I, that I should have been on and I, I took it. So, um, cause I summered twice at Skadden. Mm-hmm. So I, so actually I spent three summers there because I did my internship summer. And then as a one L at my first year, um, I applied. A one, and did you say a one L? One L. Yeah. So the, for law school, it's one L, two L, three L. That's just what they call the first, second, third years. Okay. Um, so, uh, so for your one L summer, many people like kind of, um, either summer, maybe at a nonprofit or they do kind of a clerk with a judge or something. It's kind of rare that people will actually uh, summer like at a big law firm. And so I applied to Skadden and Skadden, New York didn't hire 1Ls um, except for some some that they had uh, an arrangement with for some of the New York law schools to, to bring a few 1Ls in. But their LA office did accept 1Ls. And so I applied. And this this is where I would say it, it did help. Like, I mean, I definitely, like when I talk to them, they're like, well, you know, we can tell them that you work with us and that you were good. But of course, like your, you know, GPA needs to be, you know, in, in the right range and everything. Um, so it was definitely not a guarantee. So I had to make sure I had to submit my grades and I had to go do, you know, all the interviews just like everybody else. But it definitely did help. I will say like them opening the door being like, oh yeah, she worked here and you know, she did a good job and everything. So I was able to get an offer as a first year. And so then I was basically set. And then I got an offer at the end of both summers and, and chose to go to the New York office when I finished law school. And why did but you choose New York? One, because I mean, I guess New York was like, it was the mothership, um, you know, M&A, like Skadden's really well known for its M&A practice okay. among other practices. But that, you know, the kind of doing M&A in the New York office, like at Skadden was kind of, you know, it was a whole thing that seemed very sexy at the time. Um, and again, many of these choices I made are really not that deep. I kind of just was like, this seems like a good idea. And I just went with it. And that was that. Okay. So you're working at Skadden as an attorney and you were, were you mainly working on mergers and acquisitions or what kind of were you doing? Skadden is a rotational program where your first year, you, you basically do one year in one practice group and then one year in another, and then you choose which one you're going to be in permanently. So I did one year in M&A. That was my first year. And then I did the second year in investment management, um, which is basically like they work with all sorts of sort of private investment funds. So like venture capital, private equity, real estate, investment trust, that kind of thing. Um, but even when I was in the investment management group, I didn't really like it actually. And so I kind of kept on with the m 
M&A people because um, I, when I was there, I, I worked partly, my partner mentor, she did a lot of public M&A and, and some private company M&A as well. But then I also got um, hooked up with the Latin American M&A team and they did deals out of Latin America and they needed people who were uh, US trained lawyers who spoke Spanish. Okay. And there weren't a lot of us because it was a small team. I got a lot more responsibility when I worked with the Latin American team. I got to do a lot more substantive work. As a lawyer at that time, what types of skills did you really need to be good at in order to be successful? So as a junior associate in a big firm, um, and I, to be fair, at that time, like my experience was a little different other people's because the M&A market was still coming back because it was 2011. Mm-hmm. So, But I would say like you have to have the ability to, to grind. Like when you're a junior, it's long hours. But I did pull some all-nighters. You know, it was common to get an assignment at 5 p.m. And there was no point to ask for when it was due because it was due that night. Um, so, so like, you know, you have to be able to grind long hours, a lot of attention to detail, um, you know, especially when you're doing something like diligence, which is basically where you look at like, so if a company wants to buy another company, you have to, you know, um, essentially look at what that company has been doing. So you like review all the contracts, like look at their employment stuff, essentially looking for kind of any sort of smoking gun or any issue that, you know, that needs to be dealt with before the company is purchased. And so it can be very boring, but like no one else is doing it. So if you don't, if you don't catch something, it could come out much later that like there was some huge, like, let's say like, environmental liability that, you know, you could have caught and you didn't. So like that attention to detail, despite being bored, because it could potentially be very important mm-hmm. is like is a key skill. Um, and then just being able to um, become very accustomed to your work being criticized. Um, you know, you pretty much in the legal world can't write your name without somebody having a comment about how you did it. And that's <laughs> fine. And generally, it's never like, oh, you're stupid. It's more like, well, you're, you're a professional, and I'm going to help you become a better professional. And so this is why this wasn't up to par. And some of it's just experience. Like when you're a first year, you don't know anything. So you screw everything up and people have to teach you. It's very much an apprenticeship model. And then just having the recall of like what's going on and being able to keep that straight in your head. And then, you know, also being very responsive and kind of switching tasks a lot, fast moving, um, all that stuff is really key. Mm, Okay. Um, Did you find that most senior lawyers who were having to like teach you as a first year, like the things that you weren't doing correctly, did you find that there was understanding in that or were people like not very kind when they were giving you feedback? I think that as long as you remember that like it was nothing personal and that the the assumption is that you are a competent professional and not that you're incompetent. I think that helps a lot because mm-hmm. when you come from it with an angle of like, oh, well, they think I'm competent. They're just trying to help me be better. That's a lot different than if you're feeling like, oh, am I dumb? Like, did I mess something up? So I think just keeping that in mind really helps with understanding the feedback is helping you go to the next level and not that you're like not good enough. You know, I just was lucky that I worked with, the, always worked with good teams, but that was definitely luck because there was definitely people and not just at Scott and like every law firm there's always people that are just little jerks and it's kind of luck of the draw. And usually people know who they are and you just kind of like just try to hope you either don't get them mm-hmm. or you just go with it. Okay. Amanda has a great perspective when it comes to receiving criticism. If you want to get better at giving or receiving criticism yourself, I have two good resources for you to check out. The first is the book, The Truth Doesn't Have to Hurt. How to Use Criticism to Strengthen Relationships, Improve Performance, and Promote Change by Deb Bright. And the second book I want to recommend is called Resilience, Facing Down Rejection and Criticism on the Road to Success by Mark McGinnis. Both books can be found in the show notes at nts.today forward slash two. 
So what made you leave Skadden? Um, so I left because my, uh, at the time, boyfriend, but now husband, um, he had an offer to go work in the Bay Area. Um, and so I could have gone to Skadden, Palo Alto, maybe, but it was seeming a little tough. And I ended up deciding that I kind of wanted to make a change, but I was working with a recruiter and he mentioned that um, Goodwin Proctor, their venture capital group was looking for a new associate. and They're willing to train someone. And I thought, oh, well, like Silicon Valley, like venture capital, that seems like a good idea. And I, that was that. <laughs> I didn't really think very deeply about it. It just seemed like a good choice. The thing is, I thought, oh, well, maybe I can go to work at a VC. And even though I actually did it, it uh, that was actually just luck because most VCs don't hire lawyers. So it's actually like not the ideal path if you want to go work at a VC. Um, but at the time, I thought, oh, maybe I can do that. And, and the fact that they're willing to teach me and stuff, it just seemed it seemed good. So then I just took the leap and that was that. Okay. And so what were you doing there? So there I, um, we advised private investment funds, gen- almost almost exclusively like in with the people I worked with was venture capital. Mm-hmm. The rest of the group also did like private equity work and real estate investment trusts as well. Um, but I worked with venture capital funds in Silicon Valley primarily. Okay. What were there skills that you needed to develop in order to be successful in venture capital that were different than what you needed um, in your previous law experience? Yes. So what we did in that group is we worked with the people who were starting venture capital funds. So what people call the general partners. Mm -hmm. So we were working with the VC firms on starting their funds. And so what we are like kind of duty was was to the general partners and to the into the fund itself and not to like the limited partners, um, the investors. So what we what I needed to do was was one, to be able to understand pretty sophisticated um, business terms. But the nice thing about VC is that there's kind of a set of terms that, you know, you you haggle over, but there's a sort of a few accepted options. So it's not like it's, it's, it's a little different than other areas of law where it's super broad. Um, understanding the different options, what they meant, like the impact in terms of, you know, whether they were investor favorable or uh, general partner favorable, and then also being able to explain all those things at the level that the client wanted, um, which often they want to just like, they didn't want to hear like 10 pages of explanation. They just wanted to know kind of like, here's what you recommend and why. Was there a person or a situation that helped or hindered you with that job? Yeah, I would say like my mentor actually was great. He definitely took the feedback very seriously. So what I would have to do when I did an assignment for him is I would have to make an appointment with his secretary because he always was on calls and, and his schedule was very packed. And then I would go in and I would print out the assignments and then sit in front of him while he marked it up. And he would tell me exactly why he didn't like the sentence I'd written or something like that. And like kind of like the highest of compliments mm-hmm. was I would tell him to his face if he'd be like oh you know that wasn't bad and I was like can you email me that so I can put that on my wall yeah. and, you know, <laughs> he, was, he was harsh but he would repeatedly say like especially when I first joined he was like this is not personal he's like I'm trying to take you from like a B plus to an A plus here like and he really did make me a much better attorney a much better writer like he knew his stuff backwards and forwards so I learned a ton um, but it definitely was not something for the thin skinned I will say that um, I did learn a lot from him but um, so this was so this was like a whole nother level of feedback to like be sitting directly in front of someone here like everything about why your work wasn't good. I mean, he did that with everybody. And, you know, I, th- I think he did care about making me a better lawyer. And so that was, you know, just knowing that someone is doing something because they, um, you know, are not trying to attack you, but care about your development as an attorney or in whatever job you are. Um, I think this helps frame the feedback in a much more positive way of like, wow, now I'm going to be even better at this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, that sounds pretty awesome. So why did you leave Goodwin? Um, I left because I got an email one day from a recruiter 
about a job position. And so it was basically another letter in the mail. Oh my gosh. That's going to be the title of this episode. The woman that just got letters in the mail for everything. Yeah, pretty much. So, and the funny thing is I, I used to always get calls from recruiters and I usually would just not pick them up or like, you know, tell them I wasn't interested. And I get a lot of emails from recruiters and stuff as well. And I just delete them. But one day I was slow. I didn't have a lot of work. So I was like, oh, I'm just going to read this email. And it said like that there was, you know, like a young venture capital firm that was looking for an attorney to kind of, you know, come in on the ground floor and all this kind of stuff. And it just sounded really interesting. And I mean, to be a lawyer, you know, advising VCs, like kind of one of the, you know, dreams is to actually go work at a VC. So, I mean, it's pretty risky to go to a VC. It's much less risky to stay at the law firm advising various ones, because then if one goes down, you have another client. But to go to a VC is pretty risky. It seemed like a really good opportunity. And also I had been reading. So part of what I would do is whenever people would raise a fund, they would have a pitch deck for their investors and they would, um, you know, talk about why they were special and what they were going to do and like companies they'd invested in in the past. And I would read these like to make sure there was nothing in there they shouldn't be saying. Um, but I was reading them and just reading about the companies. And I thought this was so cool, like how some of these firms I was helping were investing in companies that were going to change the world. And so I was kind of wanted to get one step closer. So then when this opportunity came along and, you know, and the idea of being kind of like one of the early employees and kind of helping shape everything and, and be kind of having more ownership over that was really interesting to me. The recruiter I worked with, it was like the most submitted job they'd ever had. Um, like they had tons of resumes. But one thing I think that helped me a ton was that I turned out it was one of our clients. It wasn't one I worked with, okay. but it was one that my coworker worked with. So I they knew I knew like their legal documents. So it definitely gave me an edge. Um, and then also because I speak Spanish and they invest internationally as well, that was appealing to them. Um, they were kind of far along in the job search and I just threw my name in and then managed to get it. Okay. And so what did you do at Lumia? So my title was long. It was Director of International Legal and Operations. But basically what that meant was I was a second in command to our COO slash general counsel. So essentially we did all of the legal work in-house. We know we handled like all the HR stuff and like payroll and, and kind of all that sort of thing. What skills did you have to develop in order to be successful in that role? So I think once you go in-house to a company, you have to kind of switch your perspective a little bit because when you're outside counsel, their job is basically, they're always going to be more conservative than than like a regular business person would be because partly because selfishly, they don't want to be sued because they don't want to be sued for malpractice for not bringing up something. So you have to start really thinking about, okay, well, like how much risk are we willing to bear? And that's the thing is like ultimately outside counsel counts on the client to determine how much risk they're willing to bear and in, in determining their activities. So basically now that I was on the inside, I had to be the one, you know, talking with my boss and then the other, the investment team about kind of the risk there and how much we were willing to stomach. So kind of making that mindset shift, I think is huge. It sounds like you had an amazing mentor when you were at Goodwin. Was there a person or a situation or a deal that really affected or helped or hindered you at Lumia? You know, I, I learned a lot actually from my boss. So I had done like the fund work. So working with the funds themselves, but he had done like seven years of working with the companies who were getting investments. So he like would handle like a company's like series B or series C or something like that. And so he taught me all about that. So that was really helpful. Um, and then also like my, the other kind of coworkers who were my level, they were like, it was such a good team. Like they were super sharp and some of them have, have moved on to other places now, but um, they just knew a ton of stuff and they just had these really deep relationships and they just thought about things in a different way than me because two of them had been former bankers. So they approached things from kind of the banker perspective. And then one of my coworkers had, you know, worked at a company that was acquired and, you know, kind of had that early employee knowledge and he knew so much about like tech and he built our entire platform. So just kind of being around all those people really kind of lifted me up, I think, because I learned a lot more from a context that wasn't legal. So I was kind of completing that education 
patients, I was more well-rounded. And so they were really instrumental in helping me learn all that. Mm. So why did you decide to leave Lumia? Um, I just, I wanted to do something a little bit differently uh, or different. Um, I really, really liked operations. Um, and that's, I was exposed to that through Lumia. And so I wanted to go and focus more on that. I've realized like my skill set fundamentally is bossing things around. And that's kind of <laughs> what you do in And also just because the law is fine, but as I said, I'm not one person, that, I'm not a person that's like really fascinated by the law itself. So I just wasn't as interested in getting super experienced further in legal because I just didn't think I wanted to do that long term. And also I really, um, I intend to work abroad. I really want to work in London mm-hmm. and Mexico City and maybe Sao Paulo. So like mm-hmm. being a lawyer and doing that is much harder because of the fact you have to have the certification mm-hmm. whereas I can do ops stuff anywhere. And then also the ability, the opportunity to work with the foundation um, to do stuff like that's mission driven that I care about was just kind of, it was like the perfect package for me at the time. So how did you get this opportunity at Cheryl Samber Foundation? So I was um, deciding I wanted to look, get a new job. And so I was like, I used to get all these emails about the Stanford alumni job board. So this is sort of another sort of email story, but not direct. <laughs> like, oh, check out the Stanford alumni job board and all these things. And I, I never did because I always just ended up working with recruiters and that's why I would get new jobs. But I finally was like, well, let me see what this job board, if it's all cracked up to be. So I go on there and I'm like looking around and then I see this, this opportunity and I saw that the woman who posted it was someone I went to school with. And I didn't know her very well. So we had a few classes together. And so I saw that it said to apply to someone else. And I thought, well, I don't really want to do that, but I don't want to be obnoxious about it. Mm-hmm. So I was like, let me email her and see if the job's available. And that way, like I'm kind of talking to her without being blatant that I'm cutting the line. Mm-hmm. And so then, um, so I ended up talking to her that night for like an hour. I think they interviewed like over 50 people or something like that. Um, you know, I really liked them. They really liked me. It was just a really good fit. And so, so then I it was off to the races and I left Lumia and, and, you know, three weeks later showed up at the foundation. Wow. Yeah. I've been, I've been incredibly lucky my entire life. And I, I was actually reading an article recently. It's talking about how women tend to describe their success with luck. And mm-hmm. then usually talk about their innate characteristics. And I, I, I actually don't mind talking about it, expressing it in terms of luck, because <laughs> I think that is a lot of people for a lot of people that is a huge part, portion of their success. I think it makes people uncomfortable to hear that, but yeah. really like the fact that I was born in a decade where like women can do what they can do. I was born in the US, like my parents like supported me, like all these things mm-hmm. that like a lot of people don't have. And so yes, I worked hard. Yes, I had the grades and whatever that was necessary, but ultimately a lot of things were just luck and I'm okay with that. But you know, people just feel uncomfortable with that because I, again, they get stuck on that. But I worked hard. I deserve this. And I just said that you didn't work hard, but like, yes, that's important, but then also luck and who you know factors in. They're definitely not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. And I think people become comfortable with that. And because I think also once you start acknowledging that, you also start to see the biases inherent in our system and, and realize like how um, the fact that some people start on third base is not fair, even though they still worked hard. And once they're on third base, like they worked really hard to hit that home run, but you know, they started on third base where some people start in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. And that the fact that like everyone worked hard, but just acknowledging that like someone had to like overcome certain barriers that you never did doesn't mean you didn't work hard too. It just means that like, wow, that person like did a lot. And then also, can we remove these barriers because they shouldn't do that, you know? Okay. So walk me through your day yesterday from the time that you woke up until the time that you went to bed. Yeah. So generally Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday, we are in the office and then usually we work remotely on Wednesday and Friday, Okay, um, which is amazing because it it means like our days in office are very packed because we try not to do too many meetings when we're remote. Mm -hmm. Usually that's kind of like heads down, like just individual contributor kind of work that day. Um, But so Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, usually packed with meetings. My day would, I guess, be a combination of doing kind of the 
nitty gritty things that help the foundation run, like making sure like everyone's payroll is okay to like air conditioning works and the Wi-Fi is okay to like, you know, making sure our audit goes well and making sure like we record all our transactions correctly. And then also like, you know, legal things. Some of them are very basic, like reviewing contracts or kind of giving people advice on how to approach a situation or what kind of document we need. And then liaising with our outside counsel to help explain so everyone understands each other. We've grown a ton. What I'm doing is kind of like looking for things that work when we had six people, but that as we scale, aren't going to work anymore. And kind of asking like, why do we do this? Like, is there a reason that we need to do it this way? Like, is there a reason this person needs to be? Because like, I'm trying to avoid kind of bottlenecks and just basically helping the team move as nimbly as possible so that no one person is like absolutely essential to everything. Because then I think that's the mistake, you know, recipe for sort of mm-hmm. something going wrong. When you when you depend 100% on one person, that's bad. Yeah. Okay. So I'm sure most people know who Cheryl Sandberg is, including myself. But what does her found? What does the foundation do? So the foundation is basically um, kind of the the holding company for the two projects. So really, our programming is done through LeanIn.org and then OptionB.org, okay. and they are the two uh, communities that accompany her books. So she wrote LeanIn, and then she wrote uh, OptionB, and it came out this year. She also, alongside each book, created a, like a community and a foundation alongside it. Hmm. Okay. What skills required to be good as an operations person at this foundation? Anyone could do an ops job, not just lawyers. For me, I think what's helped me be successful is um, being aware of legal issues, not so much in the sense of like that we do so much legal stuff, but more like kind of, um, I think a lot of times people are afraid to do things because they're like, oh, is this okay? Is this illegal? Like they don't know, but I, I'm much more like, okay, well, are we required to do this? What's the compliance reason? Like I kind of like dig into like why things are done a certain way. And so I can understand, you know, the legal stuff behind it and see whether we actually do need to do things a certain way or whether we can do it a different way that's also compliant, but less burdensome. I think like kind of that ability to, to think about things from the legal lens and then translate into practical business solutions is key. Um, and of course, attention to detail as as in all of my jobs, it's always been a thing. Um, and I think also just paying attention to the needs of others. So like I, you know, I'm in charge of making sure like that our interns buy the snacks for the office and stuff. And so kind of noticing like when people are talking about, you know, a snack being gone or, you know, even things that seem very basic, like for, I've noticed for many, many people, um, not just at the foundation, but other companies, like if your internet's not working and you're hungry, like life is not good <laughs> at work. So like kind of making sure that like those things are taken care of and taking care of the team is really important. And then I think also just being able to have a lot of balls in the air and like not necessarily be focusing all of them at once, but like kind of keeping things going and pushing things through, even if it's a project that takes like months and months, kind of just continuing to follow up. So let's talk about flat sides. What are some flat sides that you haven't invested the time in developing yet that you think would help you do your job better? I mean, one thing I do actually want to learn more about is uh, like a deeper knowledge of, of finance. I could learn more about accounting actually. And I, I do intend to like take some classes because um, down the line, I want to be either like a COO or a CFO. So that would be really helpful for that. Continuing to, um, you know, refine my ability to manage others, just kind of basically gain better at everything I already do. Cause there's always room for improvement. We're always growing. Mm, okay. So when you need a boost of confidence, what do you do? Oh, I don't do anything. I just sort of sack up and continue on. I don't know. I guess I, 
I don't know. Like, uh, you don't have a song. You don't have like a power lifting move or anything that just like gets you in that mindset. Like, I'm about to crush this. No, because I guess the answer is it's just there is no option but to do what I have to do. Like, there's there's just no like crawling in the bed and pulling the covers in my head. Like, I have a job to do. I have things to do, and they just must be done. So even if I feel like I'm gonna fail, I just gotta try. There's just there's no other option. So I want you to pick an odd number between five and one thirty-five, and then I'll tell you why I'm asking you to pick that number. Thirteen. Thirteen? It's always my number, yeah. Oh, no, we have to pick another number because that one's not good. Okay, um, <laughs> let us say uh, 21. That's the next one that popped in my Okay, head. so I have this book and it's called Listography. And mm-hmm. it is a book that's designed to help you to create an autobiography of your life through list making. So those numbers correspond to page numbers in the book. Mm-hmm. And number 13 was your past jobs. And we just spent an hour talking about those. Oh, okay. <laughs> We're not going to go through that again. Okay. But 21 is list the people you love the most. That's pretty easy. It's my husband, my... And how long have you been married? Um, Since January 18th, 2015. Mm-hmm. But we this is, this is our seventh year together. Okay. Our anniversary is Halloween, which is the one I really focus on because I love Halloween. Um, so it's been seven years. So I would definitely say my husband um, and then my like my family, my immediate family, like my mom and dad and my sister and brother, um, you know, like my grandma and like my aunt and uncle. Um, and then my friends, um, you know, all of them. And then um, my dog. He's not a person, but... And he's pretty high up there. He's probably right after my husband. <laughs> <laughs> what type of dog do you have? He's a Havanese, which is kind of like a Maltese or Bichon, but he's cuter and smarter. And his name is, is Rafa, um, after the Mexican soccer player, um, not the tennis player. Uh, you know what? Because that's what I was thinking. <laughs> Yeah, everyone thinks it's like um, Raja, like uh, Nadal, but it's uh, Marquez. Okay, so what is something you geek out about and you are not embarrassed to admit you love it? Oh, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. Really? So which house are you? Isn't that the thing? Oh, yeah, I don't really, I don't really care about that. It's, it's a school I don't ever I don't actually go to. So I guess, I mean, I, I think the house I admire the most is, of course, Gryffindor. I think if I wasn't in Gryffindor, I'd be in Ravenclaw. But I do love the books. Like, I read them all. I've read most of them in Spanish. I've listened to audiobooks. I or watched all the movies. I wrote papers on two of the books in college. Um, so I, I love Harry Potter. And then my other kind of thing I'm, that I still love, and if I'm feeling stressed about, I'm not going to lie, I pick up the book sometimes, is I still love Nancy Drew. Like, sometimes if I'm really oh, stressed oh out, I'll read because now they take me like an hour to read. So sometimes I'll like pick up my favorite book when I was a little kid and read it because it's just like I need that kind of comfort and to like distract myself from whatever problem I have. So sometimes I do that. Do you have a favorite Nancy Drew book? My two favorites are, I'm looking at like I have almost all of them or the original ones in hardcover. I would say like my favorites are probably the second one, which is The Hidden Staircase and number five, which is The Secret of Shadow Ramp. There's another one's name I'm forgetting, but it's number 46 is my other favorite one. Oh, it's called The Phantom Intruder, I think. So I've I picked them up now and again as an adult when I was studying for the bar and like other very stressful times where I just needed to like return to that feeling of being six with not a care in the world. Hmm. I didn't realize it was that many. Oh, there's hundreds of them because there's like there's like the original like 56, but then there's like all these sub, you know, spinoffs and this kind of thing. There's hundreds of those books and they're still writing them, I think. Like they have like a Nancy Drew Kids and all this kind of stuff. So it's like still very much an alive kind of franchise. Hmm. Okay. So who are your women of color possibility so these are women that you aren't trying to emulate their lives, but it's someone that you're inspired by and someone that shows you 
that it's possible to live your dreams? I don't have any. I've actually never had like a role. Like every time someone says like, who's your hero, your role model? I've never had an answer because I never have had one. And not because I haven't been around people that have been really inspirational. But I think it's because I feel like my path in life has always been so serendipitous and so like kind of like, I don't have a five-year plan. I kind of in my mind, like even with the idea of like, oh, like I want to be a COO or CFO. That's not guaranteed. That's just kind of like a way for me to shape like kind of like, oh, well, maybe I should learn these things and kind of a way to think about something. But I'm not set on that at all. So for that reason, I don't have anyone I really look up to because there's no path I want to emulate. It's kind of like, I just want to do what seems right at the time and what feels like I want to do. So, and also I have never felt like there was something I couldn't do. I've never needed to see like a woman do something in order to feel like I could do it. Like it's just, and I think a lot of it's because my parents never told me that there was something I couldn't do. And then every time I've succeeded in an environment, like no one's ever told me like I don't belong there that I can't do it. So then it just never has occurred to me. There's something I can't do. Mm. Um, so, so it's not to say that like, I'm like arrogant and think I can do whatever. It's more just like, I don't have this idea in my head of like, Oh, if I don't see someone there, I can't do it. Like, I just don't need that because I feel like I've been fortunate enough that um, it's just always been told to me that, well, if you try hard, you can do whatever you want. And so, okay. and so I just don't need that like external kind of model. But, but I will say, I think like subconsciously I'm influenced by a lot of people. Like I think like even like with the Nancy Drew thing and being a lawyer, like that is something I didn't realize for like almost 30 years. Yeah. So like there's other things that I'm sure I've seen women do or seen men do or whoever that like have been in my head that I just don't consciously remember. But I know that I'm constantly influenced by what people do because when I was a kid, I only knew about kind of your basic career paths, like lawyer, teacher, doctor. I didn't know about like business school or like being an economist or an investment banker or anything. So like all the fact, all the things I've already done have all happened because I've been exposed to more. So I know that I'm exposed to other things. I'm subconsciously like pulling all these things in and seeing what is possible. Mm, very cool. I like that. How you've really thought about that. Very cool. Okay. If people wanted to find you online, where would you suggest they go? Um, they can find me. Um, we'll probably get the most permanent places on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. um, and then also I'm on the, the website for the, the foundation. So final question. The name of this podcast is How She Did It. If you could go back in time and give your younger self some career advice, what would you tell yourself? I would tell myself to try harder in school, like take, take advantage more of like what there is. Um, there's so many things I could have done at Stanford that just, you know, didn't occur to me. And um, so I would definitely tell myself to like take more advantage of that. And also to probably not go to law school, not because I regret going to law school, but because if I was able to like go back in time and impart all the wisdom I've learned, I would see that I didn't need, to, like I basically going to law school helped me be where I am now. So I don't regret it. But if I was to go back in time, I would tell myself like, you know, take some time off, go work abroad, like go live in like Mexico and do, you know, do this thing that you want to do because now is the best time you're free to do it and then probably like go to business school or something um like and then also just to like this is something i realized pretty early on but i would have wanted to learn it even earlier is that there's nothing to be afraid of because basically like the worst thing that i can worry about is that like like for me like really the only thing to be afraid of is that i would die in a box in the street otherwise there's really nothing to be afraid of because like if i have to like work at starbucks or something to make ends meet i will like there's no like fear so then i would tell myself like live like that like realize that there's nothing to be afraid of there's nothing you should be doing there's you know prestige is really nothing it just is it's just something that people talk about but there's nothing that you should have or shouldn't have so just do what you want to do um and don't be afraid because unless you die in the street there's really nothing bad that's going to happen okay standouts hope you enjoyed getting to know amanda as much as i did when i interview my friends i'm always pleasantly surprised at what i learn about them 
So here's some things that stood out to me during my chat with Amanda. Number one, when talking about law school, Amanda said she would ask anyone who was considering going to law school if they really wanted to be a lawyer. She specifically said, if you don't want to be a lawyer, don't go to law school. I wish I had dug deeper on this to understand why this was her advice. I also learned that there are hundreds of Nancy Drew books and Amanda is a huge Nancy Drew and Harry Potter fan. I also learned that Amanda would likely be in the house of Gryffindor. And I only know that through pop culture because I have not read one book in Harry Potter or watched one of the movies. Lastly, I want to hear from you standouts. Amanda had a mentor during her career as a lawyer who made her print out her assignments and he would mark them up and tell her why he was marking them up. So I want to know from you something that a boss or a mentor did that made you better. Tell me about it in 30 to 60 seconds. You can send your audio clips to podcast at notthestandout.club. I'll compile a bunch of responses into a mini episode that I'll release at a later date. All things referenced in this episode can be found in the show notes page at nts.today forward slash two. If you like this episode, I would really appreciate it if you would share it with your friends and also rate the podcast on iTunes. More ratings mean more listeners will be able to find the show on the iTunes directory.